The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. It's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to the Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias here again with Genevieve Koski and Keith Phelps. Tasha Robinson is currently at South by Southwest, but she'll be hosting our next pairing. On the first half of this episode, we discussed H.G. Clouseau's 1955 film Diabolique, a psychological thriller about two women who conspire to murder a terrible man whose husband to one and lover to another. In this episode, we'll bring in Thoroughbreds, a stylish and naughty black comedy about friendship and murder from Corey Finley, a 28-year-old making his debut as writer-director. Like Diabolique, Thoroughbreds develops around a plot between two women, teenagers in this case, who enter into a pact to murder a purely malevolent man. Set in suburban Connecticut, the film stars Olivia Cook and Anya Taylor-Joy as Amanda and Lily, respectively, former childhood best friends who become reacquainted after a long period of estrangement. In fact, when they meet up again in Lily's mansion for a hanging out and tutoring session, it's revealed that Amanda's mother is paying Lily $200 an hour to socialize with her. Amanda more or less declares herself to be a sociopath, incapable of feelings beyond hunger and tiredness, but Lily nonetheless takes a genuine interest in her and has some antisocial instincts of her own. Lily hates her emotionally abusive stepfather, Mark, played by Paul Sparks, the type of guy who hunts big game and obsesses over his physique, which he hones over countless hours on the rowing machine. Amanda floats the idea of killing him, but Lily doesn't take the proposal seriously until Mark threatens to send her away to a boarding school for girls with behavioral issues. The two then decide to blackmail Tim, a local drug dealer played by the late Anton Yelkin, into doing the job on their behalf. What could possibly go wrong? We'll discuss that and more after the break. I don't have any feelings, ever. And that doesn't necessarily make me a bad person. It just means I have to work a little harder to be good. I'm sending you to boarding school. After that, you're off my payroll. You hate him. You despise him. Honey, you can't go in looking like that. I'm fine. Let me just... I'm not going to have to stand here all day like a robot repeating myself. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. Everything about just killing him? How would you? What the hell is he even doing here? I am providing you all with early drug experiences that you will forever cherish. Who the hell are you? <laughs> We have a business proposition for you. You got a gun? Yes, I have a gun. You don't know where I come from. Westchester. Amanda. You have no idea. I didn't think you'd bring it here. You want to hold it? No, thanks. Anyway. 
You cannot hesitate. The only thing worse than being incompetent or being unkind or being evil is being indecisive. Okay. Shall we? So thoroughbreds, 90 minutes, right? Get, getting the job mm-hmm. done. Uh, what, what do you all think of this very interesting movie? Oh, I liked it. I went into it based on the blurbs. We originally thought about pairing this with Heather's, which I guess we can get into a little bit. And I think that pairing could have worked, but I was expecting sort of a an arch dark comedy. And it's really something much chillier and creepier mm-hmm. and, and much more in, in the vein, well, in the vein of Diabolique than, than, uh, than the kind of black comedy, although there certainly has that element to it. I And I thought... You know, Finley comes from theater. You know, it is a very theatrical piece. It's very much about this power play between these two characters for the most part. But I think it opens it up in a, in a really interesting way. I, I find the central setting of the mansion is used really effectively, not unlike Diabolique. But, you know, again, we'll get into that later. But, uh, but yeah, I thought it was a very impressive debut. And I thought both the actresses were, were, were fantastic. Uh, I knew Anya Taylor-Joy from The Witch, where I thought she was very good. And we talked about that on a previous episode. But Olivia Cook was, I think, new to me. I don't know if I, I never really... She was in Me and Earl and the Dying Girl. Which okay. Oh, sure. Oh, sure. Well, she's yeah. good. In that. She's the Dying she's Girl. Yeah, yeah. She's 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 good in that. But I, I was very different I, role here. Yeah, I didn't make that connection watching it. It's a very different role and very verbally demanding for both of them. Yeah, was, I thought it was quite a good film. Yeah, I liked it with some reservations, mostly concerning how it resolves or yes. doesn't. But I completely agree on the impressiveness of this as a debut, particularly from someone who comes from the theater. I mean, it's really easy to kind of talk about, you know, movies that play like filmed plays, you mm-hmm. know, and this is not that while it's still like clearly having very kind of theatrical elements, as you mentioned, Keith, but the style of this film is what really struck me in the experience of watching it. And it's what stuck with me most in the days since I saw it. The sound of that rowing machine is just yes. <laughs> it's like such a beautiful sonic motif that was will always be the first thing I associate with this film. Yeah, and the score too. The score too has yeah. that. Um, Particularly those like like very like percussive, almost mm-hmm. like somewhat tribal a- atonal, moments. Atonal yeah. as well. Very Toon Yards-esque. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so I've seen this film twice. And the reason why I saw it twice is because I, I thought that I fell asleep the first time that I saw it. Um, but then seeing it a second time, I realized that I really hadn't missed much of anything, <laughs> if anything at all, and that I w- had just failed to fully grasp what was going on in the last maybe 20 minutes or so. Cause we, I feel- we should briefly address falling asleep as an occupational hazard. Uh, and, and what we do, I, I tend to go into a lot of stuff with a cup of coffee just for this mm-hmm. reason, but even that's, you know. I was making fun of Scott when he told me he fell asleep. It's <laughs> yeah. only 90 minutes, Scott. Come it, on. It is only 90 minutes. But I, but I, feel I, I think like it's it, just, just to make sure we're not making fun of Scott too much. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I do have, I mean, it's an occupational hazard. I will say that when it comes to something that I am reviewing that I will do anything I can possibly do to keep myself as alert as possible. Drink coffee late into the evening, you know, have a big bag of candy that I'm working my way through whatever I need to do. But uh, sometimes I, I relax. And uh, that, I thought that happened in Thoroughbreds, but it did not. So anyway, as to the film itself, I mean, maybe that is suggestive of how I felt about it, which is I had trouble grasping where it ended up, though the second viewing clarified things for me a bit. And I ended up liking it more um, because I think the ending of the film is deliberately and intriguingly ambiguous and it's twisty in its own 
way, but not twisty in the sense that Diabolique is, in, the, in that you know it's pulling a, a shocker on you. It's a little more subtle and ins- insinuating than that. So I appreciated a little more that that time, but but mostly the style was what stuck out for me. It's hyper formal. The framing is very balanced, and it obsesses over. You know, interesting details. I mean, the rowing, the the off-screen rowing machine is one. The space of this house and how the camera kind of moves around, like a steady cam wise, mm-hmm. it's almost like The Shining and the way it kind of goes around that, the, from room to room and from level to level. And mm-hmm. you actually, I think, you deliberately don't know where you are in that space. I think that that's part of the disorienting plan uh, on the part of uh, it feels like it's like 20,000 square feet building <laughs> yeah I mean, they, they, yeah you like can't you can call out for she you know uh, uh, Lily calls out for her mom and I mean she yeah that's an amazing that's an amazing sequence when Lily is like kind of going through the dark hallways looking for her mom in the tanning bed and there's that moment is when the music really struck me but also just the the aggressive darkness of that moment and how disorienting it was um, the sequence or scene that i really loved was anton yelkin coming to the mansion for the first time Mm -hmm. uh with ave maria playing and like you get so many like very studied mannered compositions in that moment and there's just this like amazing classical architecture and like just little moments like him up stroking the guest soaps you know And, and, and like i just loved the kind of exploratory reverent nature of that scene born out almost purely stylistically i will say that kind of going back to my issues with the ending and how it resolves is that for all that like this mansion sort of becomes like a character and like the way lily moves through it is very interesting throughout the film it kind of bummed me out that the film abandons that in the big moment when she does go and kills her stepfather and we stay with Amanda on the couch, which is bold, you know, like I respect, I respect the move, but given what we had seen of that house and like the interactions in that house, I just, I kind of wanted to see, I guess I wanted to see the moment, but like not from like a, you know, a gore perspective. Like it's not like I wanted to see him get killed, but I guess I just wanted to follow Lily in that moment instead Mm. of staying with Amanda while simultaneously totally understanding why we did stay with Amanda. I mean, that is the showiest shot of the film, and but it's also the one I like the most, so I'm mm-hmm. going to defend it. I mean, for, for one, it's putting a stop to that rowing noise, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And it's allowing us to contemplate what it is that Lily is doing and who, who she is as mm-hmm. a person. Uh, so there's that, too. And I think it also emphasizes this moral disconnect that is happening in this film of, of this, 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 mm-hmm. this sense of detachment from what they're going to do. I mean, really... What is this about? But I mean, ultimately, you're getting rid of this guy because you don't want to go to private school. Yeah, that's basically it. I mean, this would have been we. we you talked, don't want to go to that private school. that private school. But yeah. I mean, we talked about we talked about like the clearest pairing for this film would be it was it was Heavenly Creatures, and that's another one where where there was just this threat of separation between these two friends, and that was enough to trigger a murder. But but here it's it's such a petty, it's such a small mm-hmm. thing. They're so completely unfeeling and detached that that they're able to pull you know at least lily pulls this off so i I don't know i I think it works to be stuck where you are in that moment for that reason because that feel because it does emphasize that feeling of detachment and it allows you also just to imagine 
what is happening that you can't mm-hmm. see. So yeah, no, I mean, I think the the way sound is used in that scene makes it effective in a way it, it wouldn't have been without that noise. And I mean, I don't want to like be too down on it because, like I said, like I think it is impressive what he is doing in that moment in staying with Amanda. I guess I, I'm just speaking more to the ominous sense that the house imparts on to the proceedings mm-hmm. and like it kind of being somewhat abandoned in that moment, like us being in a random space in the house, you know, but it's fine. It's fine. Yeah. I'm not I'm not mad about it, thoroughbreds. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, just, I'm not mad. I'm disappointed. I'm, I'm disappointed yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, so what about this r- relationship between the two of them? I mean, we'll get into later how it might be analogous to Diabolique, and it's surprising mm-hmm. in, in the way that it shifts and who might be manipulating who. But what is your reading on the end of the film? On Well, first of all, on that scene where, where Lily has put Rohypnol into Amanda's drink and Amanda just full knowledge of it just guzzles that anyway which would seem to acquiesce to what she knows is going to yeah. happen and what what happens is that she ends up getting set up so what is where is their relationship at that point what is there is it something where Lily is wholly using Amanda to her benefit or is there something real there I think we have to ask, why does Amanda drink it? Why does Amanda, you know, let herself be set up? Which goes to the bigger question is, is she actually really a sociopath? Does she have any emotions? And if not, why does she make this basically make a sacrifice for her friend? Although, you know, I'm hesitant to use the word sacrifice Mm -hmm. in terms of such a, you know, an awful immoral act. So I don't know. What do you think, Genevieve? I mean, I I think that she is in that moment and a lot of moments leading up to it, wanting to show Lily who she really is Mm -hmm. and wanting to push Lily to acknowledge what she is. You know, I take on face value. Amanda's claims that like she doesn't believe that she really has anything to offer the world or Mm. that she, I, I believe her disconnect from the world. And I believe that she in that moment doesn't care what happens to her like she's already because of this incident with the the horse you know like she's already kind of it feels like an in for a penny in for a pound moment and Mm. i think she is more concerned with doing this for lily like not out of an altruistic sense but out of a like almost calling her bluff moment or like a, Mm. a pushing her to the edge moment and like forcing her to acknowledge like this is who you are and the fact that that allows lily to get away with it like i think is the point because like lily's character her stepfather points out like is a completely selfish character and can only like view things through the extent that they affect her and Lily's a bad person, you yeah. know, like from one of the very first scenes where they are uh, eating chips in the kitchen. Amanda goes to like fold up the chips and put them away and Lily goes, no, just leave it. <laughs> and then a minute, like literally seconds later, the maid comes by and, and picks them up, yeah, you know, like yeah. just the privilege and the complete disregard for anyone beyond what they do for you Mm -hmm. um which i think is also the impetus behind her murdering her stepfather because like he's kind of a jerk but ultimately we don't see him do anything worthy of murder like i I don't want to frame it that way but like did i miss it or did no no as lily points out like when or as as amanda points out when lily lays out why she's mad at him she's like well you know he kind of has a point yeah and he kind of does i mean he's a jerk and he certainly 
um, emotionally abusive with the mother. Mm-hmm. I don't know that he's even that off base with Lily, to be honest. I mean, mm-hmm. she kind of screwed up and you know and and definitely someone who's not had a lot of discipline in her in her life and i'm not, I'm not saying i would model myself after him as a dad or, <laughs> but i'm not sure it's kill worthy what, yeah. he, what his what he's doing no no not 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 at all and, and i mean in the reason for him to be killed is absurd it's yeah it's, I mean, he, it's a decision that is probably proper given what she's done. I mean, given that she's, you know, a, a liar mm-hmm. uh, and uh, a plagiarist, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and and uh, probably had a lot of behavioral issues beyond what we even see. But it, I think it, it's, it points to also the film this could have been where he would have, you know, sexual designs on his stepdaughter, you mm-hmm. know, a much more lurid uh, film. It's a weirdly, I kind of want to talk about how it's a weirdly sexless film unless I'm really just blind to something, but like, you know, if there's sort of like a spark between the two girls, it's so sublimated. I'm not picking up on it at all. They seem to have no interest in anyone in, in a romantic or sexual way. The only character that is mentioned at all is Tim, the drug dealer. And it's because he's a statutory rapist. I mean, yeah. it's, it's a, I mean, it's a chilly film in a lot of ways. And I think that's one of them. Unless again, unless I'm, I'm missing subtext that, that other people are picking up on. I guess my read on Amanda is she is that she does feel more than she lets on. But yeah, I mean, so I, I don't. I think I in don't, general, I don't but... really take. I don't really take her remarks entirely at face value about that. I mean, I mean, you do get some weird thing of her just standing in the backyard, just like staring, which is not that normal seeming. Well, um, and it's framed by her faking a smile, trying to fake a smile, and then at the end of the movie, actually be able to have what seems like a genuine smile too, as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, so there's kind of an arc to that as well. And, and, yeah. yeah, and at the end, she is communicating, trying to communicate anyway in prison. Mm-hmm. Um, is, is, is she? In, I mean, she's obviously like in a former prison, but it's a well. It, it, it seems yeah. like a, some sort of an institution, you know. For uh, okay. you know, like she's you know doing art therapy and knitting. Uh, oh, okay. I like to think she's happy because she has gotten a life where she just has to knit for the rest of her life. As a knitter, <laughs> I relate to that. <laughs> Yeah, you want you wanted to be somewhat happy, uh, yeah. It, it's intriguing to think about, and and, and I, it, you know, and the way the film kind of turns the tables on you too, and and uh, making it seem like Amanda the, is the one that's just the American psychotype is that mm-hmm. is cold and, and twisted and diabolical, and when in fact it's really Lily who's uh, the main source of uh, concern on that on that front. Um, I also really appreciated, particularly Anya Taylor Joy's. Mm-hmm. Not only just her performance, but her presence—it's just so—it's just so striking. I mean, yeah. is, she's just a very striking-looking person. Yeah, the just, shot of her like putting on the blood red lipstick that like closes the first act or or chapter. I mm-hmm. guess I, did I miss something with the chapters, or, or were they like completely random? They seemed a little bit random. Seemed a little random and kind of oddly placed. I almost felt like the scene that we just saw felt less like the end of one chapter than the pre- the prelude to the beginning of the next chapter in a yeah. way. It's, it, yeah. It was, I, think it was, this, I think it's just the thing with this. I think this director just, he's just a very formal guy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, everything is just so, I mean, what you like, you like somebody who who is that precise, but like is very neatly laid out this whole thing. Yeah. Not a lot of spontaneity, but, you know, but in that sense, spontaneity he's a little bit. Spontaneity is not a good thing when it comes to murder. You need to plan it. You need a plan. <laughs> uh, um, perhaps in that sense, uh, he's connected to H.G. Clouseau. So we'll be right back to talk about that and other connections between Diabolique and Thoroughbreds. (laughs) 
I think we should do it. Really? Really. And you're looking at me? Only because you're the only person here. I do think you'd be good at it, though. I mean, the kind of composure you should with... Hey! Hey! Amanda! Amanda, where are you going? I don't know why you're saying all this now. I think you might be saying it because you're emotional. Why am I emotional? I don't know. You just never really tell me anything about your life. That's not true. And that doesn't stop you from asking me to kill someone for you. That's not what I'm asking. You do realize that I am the very worst person to do this. I'm awaiting trial for animal cruelty. If anything violent happens anywhere near me, I am the first person they will come after. Okay, I get that. If we were going to do this, we would both need to be far away with airtight alibis. Now it's time for Connections, when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. They have some things in common, right? Yeah. So let's get first into style uh, because Clouseau and uh, Finley <laughs> are very, not a lot is out of place in the movies. The movie, the, both films strike you as very carefully plotted out, uh, storyboarded. I know Clouseau does a lot, did a lot of storyboarding, would do dozens and dozens of takes with his actors nothing out of place there and yet thoroughbreds is by far the most fussed over of the two mm-hmm. movies so what do you think of the of the style of these two films and how, how they compare and contrast i'll start with something that we already kind of touched on with both films separately but they both use sound to create suspense but in completely different ways mm-hmm. um which i think is, is really fascinating we talked about the lack of music in diabolique and the very like off-putting atonal music in thoroughbreds but really just like how sound is used as punctuation in both films the the rowing machine and then stuff like the typewriter and footsteps in in diabolique so i feel like sound is something that we always kind of like gloss lightly over but it feels like so central to the Mm -hmm. style of both of these films like even probably more so than the composition which both films are very composed as well but yeah both films, like, when I think about the style, I think about the sound first and foremost. I think that's always a sign of a great filmmaker, too, who is attuned to using sound in a very specific, directed way, rather than as sort of a mood builder or, or an emotion manipulator. Right. The, um, I think that's that can kind of separate the good filmmakers from the, the great filmmakers, in a way. And in both films, the sound or lack thereof, has a tremendous impact. One thing that I will say about the contrast in style is that I think Finley is very concerned with framing and composition and balance and just giving you that very cold, antiseptic mm-hmm. you know, quality of, of these very wealthy, privileged people and in, in, in the spaces in which they occupy. I, I think Diabolique is more about mise-en-scene or whatever about more about movement within the frame and accomplishing a lot of things that way there's so many it's a tough thing to describe when you're not actually watching the film i mean it'd be Mm -hmm. fun to actually look at a clip of diabolique just to show how he has certain characters move within the frame and pair up and and uh you know he'll have different levels i mean i'm thinking of a scene just as you know a simple scene with uh uh, with Christine and Nicole pairing up and leaving the school, and then and then you see Michelle come into frame with frame by the the window, and the and you get the level with the with the little boy outside graffitiing the place, and it's just like it's so visually exciting and complex and, and and subtle, and it's all about movement within the frame, and that's not necessarily thoroughbreds 
but it's, but it's also like reflective of those two different settings as well because i mean like thoroughbreds is taking place in this much more like posh refined sterile atmosphere where the the boarding school in diabolik as we talked about is like you know, a little rundown. It's chaotic. There's kids running yeah. everywhere, you know. Yeah, like early on, you got listening to them, like, directing the kids, like they're diverting a river yeah, rather than, they're, yeah. they're, you know, <laughs> talking to children. Yeah, like, I mean, there is a lot more movement in the film because there's more movement in that setting, you know. It's just a less chilly, sterile environment than we're in in Thoroughbreds. Yeah, and, and he'll let, allow a certain amount of chaos to work its way into the background. I'm just talking about Luzel and thinking of the d- dining room scene or other scenes where the children are there and are totally unruly and not being managed in any way. Or, or even the upstairs neighbors, just the the agitation of, you know, the bath scene or, you know, I mean, like there's a lot of him moving around and, you know, like it's... Again, it's that that sort of like internal chaos. It would be, a, yeah, it would, and it would be an absolutely intolerable space for any of the thoroughbreds characters yeah. to exist in at all. I mean, that that is not what. Maybe not Tim. <laughs> maybe not Tim, but that, no, Tim, that, Tim will be dealing to the kids. Yeah, but that's a, that's a, that's a strategy. That's an interesting strategy too. I mean, because when we meet Tim, he's worldly. You know, he's he's not in this hermetic space. He's out. He's you know, a high school. He's giving a, or, kids their first drug experiences that they'll cherish for a lifetime. Right, exactly. <laughs> he's he's a smooth talker. He seems to know what he's doing. He's giving, you know, unsolicited advice to, <laughs> to getting to, punched to, to Lily. He's <laughs> getting punched. I mean, he's like he's kind of a regular guy. But then when you take him out of that space and put him into Lily and Amanda's world, you kind of feel his discomfort in, in you know not being in control of this being a very imposing space and him not being in control of it at all. Really quick before we just move on from the settings in Thoroughbreds, like I do want to briefly note that like we do see Amanda's house as well, which seems a lot warmer, Mm -hmm. you know, like she's still clearly affluent, like she has apparently an indoor pool, it it seems like from that almost drowning scene, but she has a golden retriever, the the warmest of of dogs, Mm -hmm. you know, like they're so there's a nice mom. She's got a nice mom, you know, Um, so like Amanda's house isn't quite as like manicured and perfected as as Lily's is which is interesting if you think of like Holmes's reflection of those characters I don't know if that quite bears out here but maybe it does I think it does I mean I think that I think the difference between the two of them I think it's important for the film that they both come from a certain level of privilege but it's mm-hmm. also important to make that distinction between the two of them and have that feed into the, the power dynamic that ends up mm-hmm. playing out uh, of of Lily ultimately being the one with the power in that relationship who is more the master manipulator uh, despite the impression at the beginning that it's Amanda who's the sociopath it's Amanda who has the initiative mm-hmm. uh who offers this idea of perhaps you know killing the stepfather when really she's she's not the one in charge I mean, I guess one thing that's, that's worth noting is is that the, the style in Thoroughbreds is really consistent from first scene to last. And in Diabolique, again, I, like we talked about before, I feel like there's sort of a intensifying and it really does turn into a very uh, horror movie type, type film after a while. And I, th- I think both kind of speak to why the films are effective. I think Diabolique works in part because you don't know where it's going. Whereas I think to heighten the style or to, or to suddenly become a much more a uh, much hotter film and to actually show the murder as we talked about, I think would kind of be a betrayal of, of the aesthetic of, of Thoroughbreds. That's true. Yeah, it would have been interesting to contrast Thoroughbreds with Heavenly Creatures, which I th- I really feel is like the 
Yeah, we, yeah, we, we should here. say we we really wanted to pair this with Heavenly Creatures, but it is not only is it not available on streaming, but physical copies are out of print. Mm-hmm. So we decided oh. that was just a little too many barriers to it's, entry. It's a big ask. Yeah, I couldn't um, like yeah it's, uh, to have Peter Jackson's best do, do film. People, not, people, you know, has it been forgotten? People, do people know no, Heavenly no, Creatures? Or I don't think no, so. I, it was a new cult canon. Everyone loves it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, no, I, I have a copy. I have a copy people can borrow. <laughs> um, but uh, just, just write, Scott. Yeah, but, but I'm sure you can get the lovely bones if you want and watch that. Um, so, uh, uh, but that would have been interesting contrast just because of the heat of the relative heat of those relationships of, of Winslet and Linsky's characters in Heavenly Creatures being outcasts who are just so thoroughly, madly devoted to each other. And then thoroughbreds which is which puts you on a much more unsettling ground where where the characters are extremely reserved or you know borderline or all the way sociopathic and yet their relationships break over a murderous conspiracy so that would have been kind of an interesting comparing and contrast because i wouldn't i i don't necessarily feel and this is another connection that the conspiracies happening in each of the film have a tremendous amount in common right no the motives are much different in each film so maybe we can draw draw that out a little bit well the motivations or the actual conspiracy slash plans for murder themselves Um, well let's go with it let's start with the motivation okay yeah i mean i think Saying up front that like no one deserves to be murdered. I think we. <laughs> well, that's, that's good. Thank yeah, yeah, done. yeah. I'm just going to put that blanket okay. statement out there. I do not advocate murder in real life. In film, show, in unlike f- some other film podcasts, <laughs> does not advocate murder. We're that episode of Film Spotting when Adam actually told people to go out and kill. <laughs> that was that was rough. Yeah, it cost him some advertisers. I think. <laughs> no, but I mean, we talked about how in Diabolique, like Michelle is clearly a abusive asshole. Like, like you yeah. know, like I mean, it is very upfront like what he has done to both of these women or at the very least we we see him do it to Christina I guess like in theory he and Nicole could be faking it for Christina's mm, benefit like yeah the, the sunglasses we never actually see the black eye right Shiner. right yeah but again as we discussed in thoroughbreds like Lily's stepfather is clearly kind of a jerk but mm-hmm. doesn't do anything that we see that seems to justify her hatred of him like he is introduced as someone she hates and as someone who it's pretty strongly implied like she sees as like a poor substitute for her dad that died like not too long ago you yeah. know like within within a few years so like she was in ninth grade and i think now she's junior or senior yeah yeah so like there's definitely i think some sort of resentment happening there that is informing her hatred of him more than you know just his general jerk store nature <laughs> hats off to paul sparks by the way who's, yeah. who's really good what and kind, good of, kind of born to play that character he really is I mean, let's get into the conspiracies themselves because there there are two of them in diabolique and mm-hmm. then there's there's one in thoroughbreds and uh the ch- i mean there's kind of the first failed one like the one to get tim to do it Oh, that's true. You, you know, so there's, there's a second effort, and and I think there's some um, shifts in terms of how we're supposed to feel about it. But Diabolique is really ultimately, you know, a very tangible reason, which is his greed, right? Which is mm-hmm. he's this is a rich jerk. If he kills his wife, then they get away with it. They they inherit a, tr- mm-hmm. a tremendous amount of money uh, that hasn't been spent on the school. 
clearly <laughs> very little bit well, very I, th- little I, think, of that I think money. it's i think it, the idea is that they will sell the, oh, of course the, no they're the, not the school and like that's the source of like i, I don't know that there's like a oh, fortune on a... top of the school i think the school itself is her fortune so there's like this built in resentment that he is like running the thing that is keeping him from seeing the money oh okay that makes that's how that i read a, it that makes a little more sense it, it seems like she might have more where that yeah, came from maybe. but but in any case the motive is money which is yeah. uh which is a very common understandable graspable reason to do something to commit murder um thoroughbreds is maybe a little bit naughtier because as we've said before you know the punishment doesn't really fit the crime as far as murder is concerned you, you don't just murder a jerk i mean I, you could maybe read that that when um lily's stepfather kind of demands that she um, talk to him alone maybe there's something yeah maybe there's there's something kind of threatening about that um that she scrambles to kind of get herself out of that situation but i th- but i don't think there's enough evidence that there is that kind of abuse that's happening either either physically emotionally sexually anything like that i think there is the possible suggestion of greed at work in thoroughbreds as well though because like that is her stepdad mark that's his house that's all his stuff you know like he's he's buying the tanning bed for her mom and he's like paying for her to go to boarding school like Mm. we we don't get clear information on what lily and her mom's like financial situation was. We're told one, before that it's told at one point though it's, that they're able to stay there because of him. You're right, yeah. right, yeah. So, um, like I, I, I was saying, like I don't know that like her if Lily's dad's death like left them in dire straits mm-hmm. and like this was a you know a survival thing on on her mom's part or if you know it was just sort of a moving up in the world type of situation. Like we don't have all the details, but I think there is the suggestion that what Mark has can potentially become theirs without Mark in the equation. And she wanted to go to that boarding school yeah. that she doesn't want to go to. Right, yeah. exactly. It is, it is another motivation just kind of brattiness, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, she she gets out of it, I guess. I'm curious about the, uh, the ending of Thoroughbreds and whether you take on face value what Lily ends up saying to Anton Yelkin's character at the end in terms of her, her interactions with um with amanda at this at this point about about her not even reading, reading these the letters. letters i mean do you, do you think that that's that she's telling the truth and that or, or that i mean i think that probably she is <laughs> but i don't know i mean is she do, it's almost it, like the sociopathy has been passed from one character to the other or or has mm-hmm. been the the thoroughness of it at least has been uh, passed from one to the other yeah mm-hmm. i never thought never thought about it that way I, I always thought of Amanda as, as a not not entirely a sociopath, but I guess she did that. The horse thing was maybe. yeah, but the yeah. horse was ill though, right? I mean, didn't we? It was an act of mercy. Yeah, yeah. she. We're first it looks like it's a cold blooded um, act, and then we found out later that the horse would never walk or or something. It's a, it's a little vague on that point, but but yeah, it sort of sheds new light on that that on that opening. Because, I mean, it's yeah. a serial killer thing to tor- torture and kill a perfectly healthy animal, but she wasn't really doing that. Yeah, right. And I think like you can, there's also some symbolic projection you can do in terms of like the sacrifice she makes for Lily and like what she does to the horse and like sort of the drive behind that. Um, While we're talking about the horse, I just need to say because I have the IMDb page pulled up and the horse is credited and the, (laughs) the horse actor's name was Odin Impetuous Low. 
And I'm sure that horse wow. is alive and well. <laughs> well, I mean, he's he's working he's according fine. to IMDb. So <laughs> uh, this is a, this is a uh, in the guild, is it the horse guild? <laughs> yeah, no, let me see if he has yeah. any other credits. Yeah, a lot, a lot of tough, 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 a lot of tough negotiation for oats. You got to get a lot of oats. No. <laughs> uh, no other credits, but he is, according to IMDb, five foot one. Hmm. <laughs> that's a t- that's a tall horse. This yeah. is a, actually a really long bio for Odin and Petros Low. <laughs> I, I invite our readers. I will not read it. But I invite our readers to check it out. Um, re- listeners, rather. Yes. Yeah, and I guess I, I guess the horse has a lot of uh, credits. Lot of, no, he uh, only has the one credit. This is this is his debut, along with. Corey Finley. Corey Finley. <laughs> Corey Finley. <laughs> Maybe. He, he, he recognized another promising talent yeah. in Odin. Yeah. he's. Uh, but I think I think we can say that, that both the horse and, and the director are, uh, are talents to watch. <laughs> yep. Okay. Um, so Diabolique is available for Filmstruck subscribers, and it's on various streaming services. You can also get it on Criterion Blu-ray and DVD. Thoroughbreds is getting a platform release around the country. It's not performing as well as it deserves, but its widescreen composition alone makes it worth seeking out on the big screen. We'll be right back with your next picture show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Keith, what in the film world has been good for you lately? So I haven't seen that much that's really gotten my heart pumping lately since the last episode. So I'm going to – well, I saw Annihilation a second time. So Mm -hmm. I could just do that. But I'm going to cheat it and go back into the memory well for – um, a very relevant film, which is called in, in English, uh, Andre Georges Clouseau's Inferno, which is a documentary oh, wow. that came out a few years ago by a, a filmmaker named Serge Bromberg. And it came about by him being stuck in an elevator with a woman who turned out to be Clouseau's second wife. And they got to talking and they talked about his unfinished film, Inferno, which was to be released, which was going to shoot in 1964. And it was a going to be a big deal movie. He had he had resources. Uh, Columbia Pictures was financing it. You know, he had, uh, you know, uh, multiple crews. The problem is uh, there were all kinds of problems with it. His leading man got sick. There were there's all kinds of technical problems. Uh, Clouseau himself had a heart attack. And production was shut down. Uh, nonetheless, when uh, Bromberg went to make this film, uh, he had 15 hours of, of, of footage to work from. And what he in the, the film is, you know, it is a documentary, and there's some also some reenactments in it as well. So what what stuck with me is is these these amazing images, and it, it's you know 1964. It, was, it, would, be, it would, would have been ahead of the curve in terms of psychedelic imagery. There's these really vibrant colors, which you don't necessarily associate with with Clouseau's most famous films, and it is a very intriguing. You know, you see it and you see all these possibilities. What if the film had been made? What would it look like? Would it have been any good? I, I think it could have been a really interesting film and also might have changed the course of, of his reputation because, you know, when the French New Wave came in, there's kind of a sweeping out of the of the old guard in terms of, you know, what was in style and what was out of style. And Clouseau, you know, was kind of, you know, was, was out of style. And, and uh, this might this might have changed that. I don't know. But it's a very good documentary. Um, so uh, Clouseau's Inferno. It's available to stream on Google Play and YouTube, and it just came out on Blu-ray not too long ago from Arrow, 
films. And they do a very, I, I haven't actually looked at this disc, but they do a very uh, nice job in general with that, uh, with, with their selection. So I would, uh, yeah, I, I'd recommend it. I was just, I, I saw it back in the Toronto Film Festival in 2009. I was just looking up. Uh, my take, which was a little bit more mixed, but yeah. I think I think I found it lacking as a doc. It's just a documentary, as a good documentary. But the footage is remarkable, and it speaks to this, as you say, kind of this next phase of Clouseau's career that never happened. You know, mm-hmm. his, his attempt to not just not even not just keep up with what was happening with the French New Wave, but go push it further sure. still and not be kind of relegated as this prestige filmmaker that the French New Wave people were rejecting. Um, so, uh, which is weirdly ironic because, because what we talked about before, because Clouseau and, and Hitchcock, their careers were running in tandem and, and there's no filmmaker that French New Wave directors worshipped more <laughs> than Alfred Hitchcock. So, um, Bad job, Caillou. Yeah, you, so, you, so, you don't know what you're, you know, they're, they're too close to appreciate it. Familiarity breeds contempt, I guess. You don't know what's good, guys. Yeah, <laughs> yeah uh, what was the French? Was the French yeah, New Wave any good anyway? Come on. Yeah, it was pretty good. All right. Uh, so, uh, Genevieve, how about you? Uh, well, what I want to recommend, I guess, doesn't strictly fall under the heading of film. Uh, it sort of falls at the intersection of TV, movie, theater, and oral history. Um, but I think ultimately lands under the broad definition of documentary. Um, I'm talking about Notes from the Field, which is a new 90-minute piece by Anna Devere Smith. Um, and if you're familiar with Smith's work, particularly Fires in the Mirror, uh, you probably already have some sense of what this piece is, but I will provide an overview. Drawing from interviews with more than 200 people, Smith performs a one-woman show exploring America's school-to-prison pipeline, portraying 19 different individuals, from students to administrators to prisoners to politicians, and all points in between, uh, telling stories that interweave into this astute and surprisingly dynamic portrait of the troubled intersection of these two institutions. Smith is a performer like no other, so I think Notes from the Field can be appreciated and admired purely from a performance perspective. Uh, it's really incredible to watch her morph from one characterization to another with little more than a repositioning of her body and face and voice. But um, I also think Notes from the Field can be experienced as, like I said, documentary as it essentially amounts to this very dynamic, embodied take on a series of talking head interviews. And that way, it kind of reminds me of Ava DuVernay's 13th, uh, not just because of the related subject matter, but because it represents this high-level execution of a very familiar mode of documentary, one that gives an immediacy and vibrancy to the material. Um, I think it's a pretty essential piece. And while it's occasionally devastating in its observations. It's also very easy to watch, primarily due to that dynamism that Smith brings to it through her performance. Um, again, it's called Notes from the Field. It's an HBO Films film, <laughs> so it's playing on HBO pretty regularly this month, as well as on HBO's streaming platforms. I would recommend it. Have either of you seen it? No, I, I'm I'm and I'm a complete idiot when it comes to her work yeah. generally. So maybe this is going to be a good place. I mean, to start. yeah, I mean, I mean, I guess it, I would definitely approach it probably more as filmed theater mm-hmm. um, than as film. Although there are definitely some, there's definitely some thought put into how it is put on screen. But um, I think it's much more about the performance and the story being told than any stylistic uh, thing. Although the kind of the approach itself, I guess, is the stylistic element that I'm responding to here. Yeah, you, have you seen much from uh, Anna Devere Smith? No, I'm similarly a dummy. Oh yeah. well, you no, got you guys. You're bad, bad you got some great stuff waiting for you when you get to it. Indeed, so, <laughs> Scott. What about um, you? So I wanted to talk about a film called Intruder in the Dust for Black History Month. In 
February, Manola Dargis and A.O. Scott of the New York Times wrote an eclectic pocket history of African-American cinema with one title for each of the 28 days that month. Lots of really cool surprises, things you wouldn't expect. I mean, I really thought they did a thoughtful job on it. In my capacity as a writer for the watching section of the Times, I was assigned to write a few permanent capsules in support of their picks, including ones for the musical Stormy Weather, uh, the landmark experimental doc Tongues Untied, and the Jackie Robinson story, in which Jackie Robinson plays himself. Those are all recommended on various levels. They're, all three are quite interesting, particularly um, Stormy Weather and Tongues Untied. Uh, but the, one, the most striking discovery for me was a noir called Intruder in the Dust, uh, based on a story by William Faulkner. Uh, it's about a black man falsely accused of murder in small-town Mississippi, and the white townspeople who are eager to take him out of jail to hang him themselves, regardless of his legal rights. The film was made in 1949, well before the Civil Rights Movement, uh, but it argues strongly against prejudice and racial injustice in the South. It's also strikingly photographed in, in, in very powerful black and white by Robert Surtees, who would go on to shoot The Graduate, uh, The Last Picture Show, The Sting, and uh, other films like that. So he's a legendary cinematographer. Um, you can find the film for... Uh, it, you know, I found the film on Stars. It was on the Stars streaming service for a while, but I think it's gone. Uh, but it, the film is available for digital rental and other places. William Faulkner, who was, who was har- hardly a fan of, of film, period, let alone adaptations <laughs> of his work, uh, uh, really loved and advocated for Intruder in the Dust, which I think he called the only film of its kind that wouldn't be laughed out of Harlem. <laughs> uh, so uh, so uh, there's a recommendation for you. And I just think it's a film that's a- ahead of its time and, uh, and and continues to be relevant and was and is typical of the good, smart choices that were on this list of Dardis and Scott's, which I, I thought um, was very thoughtfully done. Uh, yeah, so in- Intruder in the Dust. Check it out. And that's it for this week's edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next episodes come out March 27th and 29th. Genevieve, what are we discussing? Ernest Klein's best-selling novel, Ready Player One, relies heavily, some say too heavily, on evoking readers' presumed nostalgia for the geek culture of the 1980s, the culture Klein grew up on. The book is built around lists of his favorite video games, TV shows, comics, music, toys, and of course, movies, from the Star Wars series to War Games to The Last Starfighter to Back to the Future. His story uses these things as clues in a quest to control the future of an immense virtual world called the Oasis. Ready Player One follows protagonist Wade Watts and his friends on that quest, as they try to beat a greedy corporate stooge who wants to steal control of the Oasis and commercialize it. Steven Spielberg's new film adaptation of Ready Player One puts the audience right in the middle of the fast-paced video game action, as both sides fight for the master control switch. All of which reminds us a lot of the 1982 movie Tron, another of Klein's touchstones in the novel, and another story about people within a futuristic video game world fighting for control of a game out in the real world, with all the money and power that comes along with it. Ready Player One and Tron have very different ideas of what gaming and the future look like, but both of them pit visionary programmers against scheming businessmen, with an entire hidden world as the stakes. They have a lot more in common as well, and we'll get into that on our next episodes. Tron, 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 Scott's Tron. very excited about Tron. <laughs> oh my gosh. I was also, like Ernest Klein, a child of the 80s, and uh, Tron factored in, right, Keith? You watched a little bit of Tron, didn't you? Yeah, I enjoyed Tron. You know, uh, You've seen I, that film? I've only seen it once, so I saw it as a kid, and I have not been back to it since, so oh, it, it should just, be... It holds up beautifully. 
<laughs> it, it's something. Shh, you're ruining. Something you're you're, you're, you're spoiling the next episode. So. All right. Well, I'll stop there. Uh, in the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Diabolique, Thoroughbreds, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may post your response on Facebook for discussion or read it on a future episode of the show. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Keith. You can find me at uprocks.com where I'm editorial director of film and television. You can find me on Twitter at kphips3000. Genevieve. You can find my work at the culture section at vox.com and I'm on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. Um, and uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at Scott underscore Tobias. You can find my work at the New York Times, Washington Post, Vulture, uh, Verge. I had, a, I had a review run in Tasha Robinson's The Verge um, of uh, Tomb Raider, which you really shouldn't see. It's very, it's very <laughs> uninteresting. Um, but maybe you should read the review and, uh, and bring your clicks to Tasha's nice uh, website. I, I am also the editor-in-chief of Oscilloscope's uh, Musings blog. Uh, Tasha, who is not here, uh, she can be found on Twitter at, at Tasha Robinson, and she is the film and TV editor for The Verge. And uh, she'll be back to host the next episode very exciting so you can stay updated on the next picture show by visiting nextpictureshow.net via twitter at next picture pod via facebook at facebook.com slash next picture show and if you haven't subscribed to the show on apple podcasts already please consider it apple podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners and while you're there we would appreciate every rating and review every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keeps the show going Thanks to Dan the Snake Jakes for his assistance producing this podcast. And thanks to Genevieve Kosky for providing recording space in her home base, Genevieve Kosky's apartment. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts and the Panoply Network. Please tune in next time. The world.